September 5th. I hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines at 8 a.m. Wake up and smell the revolution. We're also your national movement building show. And uh, Channing and I are going to do uh, a very interesting uh, review of some old classics. On It looks like on April 19th, 2013. Oh, my God. Ten years ago, we did uh, some of the best of Voices Radio. And when Channing and I go back, sometimes we want to replay them because they're the best of Voices Radio. So you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, The first thing is the excerpt one is with the great political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal. In this excerpt, Mumia and I discuss the concept of menticide wiping out a people's historical memory in order to disempower them, to demobilize them. In this case, we discuss how the knowledge of movement leaders like W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Malcolm X has not been transmitted to a new generation of black youth or youth of any race for that matter. And that leads me to the book that I'm working on called I Saw a Revolution with My Own Eyes, History, Strategy, and Organizing, for the revolution we need today, because like Mumia, I'm trying to challenge menticide by rewriting history and get young people to read history. The second excerpt is from the great scholar Diane Fugino. Uh, In this excerpt, Diane Fugino, associate professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, discusses her recent book, Samurai Among Panthers, Richard Aoki on Race, Resistance, and a Paradoxical Life. She describes the political influences that turned Aoki into a revolutionary nationalist who joined the Black Panther Party at the very beginning. She described how he was shaped by the Japanese internment camps, growing up in black, working-class neighborhoods of Oakland, and in his early 20s by his work with socialists of the old left before he joined up with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in college. There was some controversy later about was Richard Aoki an informer. I never got the full story, and I don't like charges. I just want you to know I'm acknowledging it. But the story speaks for itself, and Diane's interview speaks for itself. Uh, Excerpt three, Lisa Gay Hamilton. In this excerpt, Actor and activist Lisa Gay Hamilton talks about the political influences on her life that evolved into her left anti-racist politics. And she discusses the difficulties of getting work in Hollywood, let alone acting roles that are politically progressive and meaningful when you're an actor who is black, a woman, and have left politics. And, you know, Channing and I have been talking a lot about the system's integration of black and Latinx and other actors into these pro-imperialist films. 
So then you're placed in a difficult position. Do I want a black role? Do I want a Latino role? Of course, the role I'm playing is against my own people, but it's a dilemma. And I know Lisa Gay would never do that, which is what a lot of her conversations about. The fourth, and I'm wonder, so happy to talk about this, is seriously one of my dearest, dearest friends, the late Aris Anagnos. Uh, by the way, I've done a book about him, or I should say it's his autobiography, but I worked on it, The Passionate Odyssey of Aris Anagnos that is at the Strategy and Soul Bookstore, 3542 Martin Luther King, and you can get by going to info at thestrategycenter.org. What an amazing person Aris was. In this excerpt, Aris talks about the Greek and Los Angeles leftist and a major supporter of revolutionary movements around the world, Aris, that is, discussing the growing crisis of European capitalism and what form that crisis has taken in Greece and why Greece and the Greek people have been scapegoated. Uh... What I love about this show is everyone, and I love everybody on the show, but of course, we chose these people. So, the last is Alex Sanchez. In this ex excerpt, Alex discusses the life and political influences that took him from being a working-class Salvadorian immigrant and former gang member to become an internationally known peacemaker and executive director of the LA organization, Homies Unidos. So have a great time. I mean, this is five phenomenal people, and listening to them in sequence will give you a sense of the movement that the Strategy Center is trying to build, because each one of these people is great, but the five of them together, you get a sense of a revolution as possible. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. You're on KPFK. 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. I'm here with my partner, Channing Martinez, and we can hear us on podcasts wherever you get your podcast. Just put in voices from the front lines. Even I can do it. That's how easy it is. Uh, and I like listening to it. Uh, a lot of times I listen and go, Damn, that was good. I forgot I said that. I forgot Channing said that. Because when you're doing a show, a lot of times you're concentrating on either speaking to someone else or you're concentrating on making your own ideas clear. But that doesn't mean you remember everything that you said. So enjoy the show. I'll see you next week at 8 a.m. And all power to the people. Take good care of yourselves. And always... You can give some money to KPFK at 818-985-5735. This is not a fund drive. But at KPFK, every day is a fund drive because every day they need to pay the rent. Take good care of yourselves. We want to see today, one of the things Jeff Ramsey, Ray, and I, the producer, we are consistently trying to figure out who of you are out there. Do you care about the show? And for us, caring about the show means... Some pretty simple things like, will you sign up for the website? The reason for that is if you register at the website, we have your email. Then if there are causes that we think are important, we can send you an email. You'll, you'll go or not go. You'll go to the demonstration or you won't. But it says to us that you want to get involved in social movements. You want to do something. 
So there's three ways you can help us. Uh, one, you can go to the Voices website right now. It's a very cool site, VoicesFromFrontlines.com, designed by uh, Tanya Bernard, and sign on to the email form that pops up there. You can also click on the Facebook icon there, and you can like us. Or, if you're on Facebook, search for Eric Mann Speaks, one word, and you can like us that way. We're going to do five different uh, excerpts today. One from Umiya Abu-Jamal, one from Diane Fugino, one from Lisa Gay Hamilton, one from Arison Agnos, and one from Alex Sanchez. And now we're going to go to the clip. The first one is where Mumia and I discuss the concept of menticide, wiping out a people's historical memory in order to disempower them, to mobilize them. In this case, we discuss how the knowledge of movement leaders such as W.E. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and Malcolm X has not been transmitted to a new generation of black youth, or youth of any race for that matter, and why the show is going to do so. So let's take a moment and listen to Brother Mumia Abu-Jamal on Voices from the Front Lines. Really, the pogroms and the racial violence waged against black people all throughout the country during the 19-teens. And it's another Du Bois. I mean, he's darker, he's bolder, he's angrier, he's grittier. And it's just a remarkable public intellectual and radical and eventually revolutionary, giving his thoughts on what's happening in the world of that time. You know, to read the intellectual biographies and to see a 90-plus year life and to see the constant evolution of his thinking, to actually die on the day of the March on Washington and to advocate communism, I read a quote by King who said, Let's get right to the point that because Du Bois was a communist, you're trying to wipe him out of the historical record. Right. Well, in many ways he has been. I mean, if you think about many of his contemporaries of that time, for example, Paul Robeson. I mean, who knows who Paul Robeson is? If you're an African-American historian or you study African-American studies and history, you may be familiar with him. But, you know, there was a time that he was literally the most famous man, if not the most famous black man in the world. There were streets and universities and mountains named after him throughout much of the third world. He was treated like a prince when he went to the Soviet Union. But of course, his passport, like Du Bois, his passport was seized by the U.S. government and for years he couldn't travel. But that's lost history in many ways. And today, Millions of black people who he fought for and working people who he worked with and fought for don't even remember his name. So, you know, the Disappearance Act is very powerful in the United States of America. Well, you know, I know a lot about Du Bois and Robeson. I've read all the biographies. I mean, Robeson was, of course, almost superhuman in terms of all-American football player, Phi Beta Kappa, spoke 40, 50 languages, the greatest singer I think one of the things that's really important... And lawyer, don't forget. That's right, and lawyer, and right. and playwright, and actor. Right. But one of the things I think is really missing today that scares me, I mean, I come out of the 60s, I'm a product of black liberation culture and intellectual thought, that I think to see young people today, that is really being lost, including even the history of the 60s and the black liberation movement, let alone Du Bois and Robeson's We Cry Genocide. What do you think... Well, what can we do? Well, this is um, what a famous black psychologist called menticide. 
That is the seduction wow. of the mind. A few weeks ago, I saw, ironically, a well-known, very erudite black historian and scholar, Mel Irvin Painter, say on C-SPAN 2 that studies have shown excuse me, studies have shown Hey, these people are kind of rude, don't you think? Quite rude. No kidding. We're having an interview here. I mean, they have no respect. None whatsoever. <laughs> Go ahead. Dr. Painter said, and she's speaking to an audience in Harlem at the Harlem Book Fair. The more children, black children specifically, and Latino children, but the more black children watch popular culture, the more damage it does. That is to say, it creates a kind of genocide. It destroys their consciousness. It does damage to their self-esteem and how they look at themselves and how they see themselves in the world. Now, I happen to think that's the intention of popular culture, you know, this mercantilist, you know, shop every day, emptiness that we see on reality TV every day. I think it's true as well. But one of the worst things they've done is they've obliterated African-American culture in the minds of African-American children so that they do not know their history or from whence they come. That's a kind of historical genocide, if you will. We at the Strategy Center are trying in our very small way to rebuild black political thought as a frame for not just African-American people, but it's been, in fact, the best frame that was created for understanding this country, for understanding imperialism. If you look at the 60s, every single person, Latino, Asian, indigenous people, were whites, were totally shaped by black political thought. That's a fact. That is an absolute fact. And I mean, not kind of a a theoretical construct. I say that because being part of the Black Liberation Movement and other similar type movements over an extended period of time, when I meet someone who is a white anti-imperialist activist and resistor, I invariably ask them about what turned them on, or what event or book or person or personality or voice moved them to the movement. Among people of my age and slightly older, Dr. Alan Berkman, his wife, David Gilbert, a lot of people of the, say, SDS and Weatherman generation, they always say that they were living in New York and they heard Malcolm speak and the world was different. You know, the day they heard him speak, like David Gilbert went to Columbia and he gave a speech and a week later Malcolm was gone. But it stuck with him his entire life. It transformed his consciousness. It opened up doors of perception that he didn't know existed. It told him the truth about American history and, through extension, African-American history. The great stories that have been submerged in the mud, in the blood of the American imperial story. And it transformed it. Well, that was the voice, of course, of Umiya Abu-Jamal, now let's give an example. Um, uh, I'm in touch with Maria Abu Jamal. There's going to be need uh, to help him on his case. There is an effort now to first, now having got him off death row, uh, to free him. And there'll be campaigns, and I'll need to reach you on that. But I need you to be on the Voices from Frontlines list, VoicesFromFrontlines.com. 
I need you if you like the Maria interview. I'm not asking you for a contribution to KPFK. I'm asking you the contribution of your time and energy. So go to your, go to your computer, computer and boot up and go to voicesfromthefrontlines.com and please sign on to the email form. Now, if you're on Facebook, oh, you can check on the Facebook icon there and like us as well right on the site. Or if you're on Facebook, you can search for Eric Mann Speaks and like us that way. Now, the next person you're going to hear from Voices from the Frontlines is Diane Fugino. In this excerpt, Diane Fugino, Associate Professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara, is going to discuss her recent book, Samurai Among Panthers, Richard Aoki on Race, Resistance, and a Paradoxical Life. She describes the political influences that turned Aoki into a revolutionary nationalist who joined the Black Panther Party at the very beginning. She describes how he was shaped by the Japanese internment camps, growing up in black working-class neighborhoods of Oakland, and his early 20s by his work with socialists of the old left before he joined up with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in college. We're going to now listen to the clip from Diane Fugino. I want to focus on your book about who is Richard Aoki, the tremendous contribution he made. Yes, thank you, Eric, uh, for focusing on Richard and for the interest that you've shown from long before this controversy, not only in Richard Aoki, but in the Asian American movement and the Asian American left and Afro-Asian solidarities and so forth. And I'm so appreciative to you as well as uh, this shows the importance of alternative media. Richard Aoki was born in 1938 he was three and a half years old when he went inside the concentration camps. And, you know, many people think that the camps were fine for children as long as they could play with their friends. But Richard Aoki's story shows a camp, concentration camps that were filled with violence and conflict. And he lost a kind of innocence of childhood, right, a belief in faith in his country. And um, significantly, his parents split up inside the camps. And in what's even more unusual, he went to go live with his father inside the Topaz, Utah concentration camp and upon return to the Aoki family home in West Oakland. And this really comes to shape Richard's life in very significant ways, his understandings of race, his understanding of poverty as the Aoki family experienced downward um, economic mobility. And he was homeschooled, and when he went to... Merritt College in the mid-60s, that's when he really began to connect with Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, who were to go on to form the Black Panther Party. Well, before we get to move forward, I was just at a film showing the other night, and I met a, a filmmaker who's doing a film, I believe, about Tule Lake. And I think for a lot of our listeners, before we even move forward, Richard, it's been a minute. Uh, you said 110,000 Japanese Americans were in concentration camps. Let's just spend a minute on that before, you're, in terms of the context of Richard's life. Tell our listeners just a little bit about that, and we'll move on to Richard's development. Yes. I mean, up until the Asian American movement and the redress movement of the late 60s and 70s and 80s, what was written about the concentration camps was, if anything, a small paragraph in high school textbooks saying that the incarceration of, or the internment, was the term, of Japanese Americans occurred out of military necessity. And there was a sense that this was a national security um, concern. And because Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor, the, the U.S. government had fears that, um, erroneous fears, 
that the Japanese Americans would ally with Japan and, you know, engage in espionage and sabotage and fifth column activity. Of course, all the evidence shows that there was not a single incident of espionage, sabotage, or fifth column activity on the part of Japanese Americans, and that this was a racist act in that the U.S. was also at war with Italy and Germany, and yet the Italians and Germans were not incarcerated in mass. And if it really was a national security concern, then why weren't Japanese Americans in Hawaii, the location of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, incarcerated in mass? There were individuals, but not in mass. And, you know, the, what everyone's saying is that the there were Japanese comprised 35 to 40% of the Hawaiian population, and it would have collapsed the economy to have incarcerated Japanese Americans in mass in Hawaii. Well, let's now fast forward, so we got a little on that. Was Richard in the Third World Strike at San Francisco State before he joined the Panthers? No. He... Richard, um, he graduated from high school in January of 57 and went straight into the military. And um, and this was also a period of the buildup of the largest you know, U.S. military buildup, right, in, 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 this, in this period, the Cold War, what Eisenhower would later call the military-industrial complex. Right. So Richard grew up with these kind of conventional notions from the 1950s and was very enthusiastic about joining the military and um, was eager to learn how to use guns, and he learned that in the military. He returned to Merritt College in 1963 full-time, and that's where he began his... his he, he first got politicized through the Socialist Workers' Party and the Young Socialist Alliance. And it seems like a, a huge turn. How does somebody who's eager to join the military and who's fairly conventional politically come to join the Socialist Workers' Party in the early 60s? But Richard Aoki... One, had grown up in the concentration camps and in the working-class black community in West Oakland. And so he understood issues of racism and poverty, which helped him to be open to left analyses of power and society. And so while he was in the Army Reserves, he worked a series of working-class jobs, and he tells stories of how, through those jobs, he came to understand how workers on the ground struggled. He came to understand the workings of capitalism, and he also got introduced to labor organizers and left organizers. Well, tell me about his relationship with Bobby Seale and Huey Newton at, at Merritt College. Mm -hmm. Yes, he comes. The, the, the mythology is always that he ran the streets with Huey and Bobby, but he was acquainted with the families. But because Richard was homeschooled until junior high, he actually didn't know them that well. He knew them some. He was acquainted with them. But it was at Merritt College in the mid-60s, around 1964. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale are in the Seoul Student Advisory Council at Merritt College, and Richard starts uh, with others this um, socialist discussion club. So let, Richard enters the movement through the old left, and but it's through the Socialist Workers' Party. If you recall in the pages of their newspaper, The Militant, they were actively following Malcolm X yes. after he broke with the Nation of Islam and covering his speeches and his ideas about black nationalism, internationalism. And so Richard comes to black nationalism through the Socialist Workers' Party, but it's through interactions with people like Bobby Seale and Huey Newton at Merritt College. They would have exchanges with their two groups that he came to learn black nationalism on the ground from, well, studying black nationalists, right? Right, right? And he learned a radical black nationalism and an internationalist black nationalism, and one that combined theory, intellectual reading, with on-the-ground organizing and work.
Well, this is Eric Mann again. Um, I'm really enjoying this show. Uh, it's just pretty amazing the kind of guests we have on this show and the kind of conversations we have. I know a lot of you like it. Uh, this show is just like a, uh, a fun drive, but this is an organizing drive. So, uh, we want you, if you liked Mumia Abu Jamal, if you liked Diane Fagino, which I did, uh, please go to our website, voicesfromfrontlines.com, and you gotta sign up on the email form. That's the way we know you're out there. You know, you don't even have to send us any money. You can also click on the Facebook icon there and like us. Or, if you're on Facebook, you can search for Eric Mann Speaks and like us that way. Then the next excerpt is with the actress Lisa Gay Hamilton. In this excerpt, actor and activist Lisa Gay Hamilton talks about the political influences on her life that evolved into her left, anti-racist politics. And she discusses the difficulties of getting work in Hollywood, let alone getting acting roles that are politically progressive and meaningful when you're an actor who is black, a woman, and have left politics. So you've heard Mumia Abu-Jamal, you've heard Diane Fugino, you're going to go on VoicesFromFrontlines.com, yes you will, and now we're going to listen to one, two, three, Lisa Gay Hamilton. She currently teaches at the School of Theater for the California Institute of the Arts. Very nice to have you on the show, Lisa Gay. Um, thank you for having me. Well, let's start with this. I'm always interested in how people so-called became radicalized. What were some of the experiences, and when did your personal experiences turn into the light bulb going off and saying, both these are my personal experiences, and they're broader than my own experiences? Um, probably from my, my parents, who are um, both from the South. I grew up on Long Island, and... Um, while they weren't marching in the streets, they were, you know, more like the, some of the middle class blacks who were, you know, writing a check. <laughs> but still had very strong political left wing views. And I watched, um, both of my parents experience racism and the stories that they shared. And I think inherently, um, that just infused into my sister and, and, and myself. I don't know. I just, it's just always been there. It's just always been there. Well, when I heard you speak at USC on this, I thought, terrific one-woman show, uh, I heard you uh, refer to the fact that one of the influences on you was Paul Robeson. Why don't you tell our listeners, first of all, a little, a lot of them know who he is and some of the younger people don't. And then how did you and Paul Robeson, you know, in terms of ideologically, <laughs> you know, how, how did his work influence your thinking? Well, I, I learned about Paul Robeson through Gil Noble, who passed not too long ago, who was the uh, creator and host of um, Like It Is on ABC in New York. And I learned about Paul Robeson. I learned about Martin Luther King, Adam Clayton Powell, um, all of the great giants. And Paul Robeson was um, a, a Renaissance man. This is someone who spoke many languages. He was a... Uh, Heisman Trophy of that Heisman Trophy winner. He um, was all American. All American. He was um, known for his singing, his acting, and probably most importantly was his political activism, um, and whose politics were very much part of the the left wing. Um, he and Du Bois were responsible for 
Is that right? I don't have that yeah. right. Is it divorce for um, genocide? No, that's not correct. We cry genocide. Yeah, we cry genocide. We were I'm just sorry. talking about that at the Strategy Center today. I was talking about in 1949, I believe it was, yeah. Robeson and Du Bois right. came to the UN with a manifesto, which we're about to look up. So funny you should mention that. Right. I have William Patterson in my head, so I was, well, thinking, he's important of, too, <laughs> I was thinking of him as so well. So we cry genocide, yes. and I was in some ways a, a forerunner of Malcolm X's concept that there are civil rights, but there are also human rights that go outside the boundary of the mm-hmm. United States and let's take it to the UN. Mm-hmm. So, um, And this is someone who um, was blacklisted yes. and whose passport was taken away and whose um, career to some degree was squashed um, by the, the U.S. government at that time. You know, having that bug inside of me um, that is very much a, a, a storyteller. But the trick becomes what stories am I interested in telling? What characters am I interested in portraying? And, and there and lies the rub in which um, I'm in a profession that is um, dominated by um, white men um, who have a particular um, take on um, people of color and what we look like, what we sound like, what our backgrounds are, and and I shouldn't just say white men. I mean, it's 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 dominated by those who have a very um, one-sided, stereotypical, um, limited view of of the world. <laughs> well, and also in terms of a so-called period piece, there was at least a moment where the angry black woman could be a, a hypothetical character. But there's very little casting at this point in history. You think that's right in terms of the ability to speak and get really good spoken parts that would say anything remotely like your politics? No, it doesn't exist. And that's the dilemma perhaps someone like me faces um, who has um, particular political viewpoints and only wants to um, work on material that allows me to be a a full-fledged human being. I bumped into um, Harry Lennox, who's another wonderful actor, and... and, um, you know, greeting each other and saying hello. And, and of course, actors asking us, so what are you doing? (laughs) But we knew not to ask each other because there is no work, um, because it has stopped. We were both looking at each other saying, you know, it's hard to believe that it's come to this. And, and, you know, as Harry said, and I agreed, you know, I didn't even want to see the help, you know, nor did I want to be in the help. You know, we've seen that. We've done that. Why must we repeat that? Um, So if, in fact, we want to participate in the commercial market of the mass media, it's always going to be very, 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 very difficult, I think, to bring a different political perspective that's more on the left. Um, And so the question is, um, how does one um, still uh, fulfill that desire and love of being an artist and yet not necessarily making your bread and butter from that, but participating in either a more local level or um, just out of that spotlight? Well, we're back. I mean, I'm having a really great time. I mean, this is really, uh, G's and the, uh, our engineer who we've worked with for years was saying how good Lisa is. And so now we have, uh, Mamiya Bujamal, Diane Fugino, Lisa Gay Hamilton. Um, I'm just really enjoying the amazing people we have. You know, this show is a conversation show. It's not an interview show. The next one is very interesting. It's another friend of mine, and he was also in the studio, Arison Agnos, a really wonderful guy. Uh, he's about to have his 90th birthday, uh, just a tremendous human being. The Greek and Los Angeles leftist and a major supporter of revolutionary movements around the world. He discusses the growing crisis of European capitalism 
and what form that crisis has taken in Greece, and why Greece and the Greek people have been scapegoated. I'm joined by Aris Anagnos. Aris was born in Athens, Greece in 1923. Aris, you'll correct any part of the biography when I finish. In 1941, during the Nazi occupation of Greece, he escaped to the Middle East and joined the exile Greek army of resistance to the Nazi occupation. After the war, he traveled to the U.S. to study at UCLA and has lived here ever since. He's maintained strong ties to Greece, helping support Greek resistance against the 1967 to 1974 military dictatorship in Greece, for example. And for many years, decades, He's been a very active supporter of the revolutions in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Cuba. In Los Angeles, Aris was on the board of the ACLU of Southern California for over 25 years, president of Southern California Americans for Democratic Action. And 1988, Aris and his wife Carolyn established the Peace Center in Los Angeles, a building where several peace and social justice organizations are housed, free of charge, and several others use the building for meetings. Aris, very nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. What happened is um, uh, Greece had borrowed a lot of money, part of it for military purposes because of the constant threat from Turkey, but part of it for political uh, squandering because during the six years of a right-wing government between 2004 and 2010, uh, there was a lot of mismanagement, a lot of corruption. Of course, there was corruption before too. But then came these big loans. The European banks were glad to lend the Greek state money, and uh, particularly for purchasing French and German arms mm. and American arms. And then came the day of reckoning, and Greece didn't have the money to, to repay. So they came the so-called bailout, which was really uh, a blackmail because it was imposed by uh, by the force of, of a creditor over a debtor. But the, the conditions were so cruel and, I, I would say, inhuman, in addition to being unrealistic, for example, Greece was uh, required, or the Greek government was required to privatize all kinds of public enterprises, like the public power company or the, pub the national railroads. Now, these are, these are enterprises which uh, furnish vital services to the public at a reasonable cost. And if there's a profit that is revenue to the state, which uh, would have to be replaced by new taxes if these enterprises were uh, sold. In addition to that, the Greek government was stalling in the privatization because they know that in the current depression, uh, they cannot get any reasonable prices for these major assets. They would have, have to receive practically fire sale prices. So they've been stalling, which created a substantial resentment uh, in the Troika. The Troika is the International Monetary Fund, the European Commission, and the European Central Bank. And they, the three of, the three of them imposed what is called the memorandum, this agreement, which provided not only for privatizations, but for substantial cuts in salaries, in pensions, in the minimum wage, and in the laying off of many thousands of public servants. Um, now, According to the original terms, uh, Greece is supposed to pay another 14 billion euros in debt repayment and lay off more people. And people have reached the, the limit of their endurance. 
That's why you saw the riots, the uh, turbulence in, in Athens and in other cities. Very hard to hear. This is really great. So obviously we see a decline in capitalism. I think it's very interesting what you're saying about the use of loans to essentially break the back of a viable government in, under certain circumstances. What role is Germany playing in this? And, and two questions. Greece seems to be heavily scapegoated as if the Greeks are bringing down the economic crisis on, on the Europe. And secondly, the Germans are being heavily criticized from the more progressive point of view. Which criticism or both do you think are correct? Well, both are correct because before the Greek crisis, there was a, a crisis in Ireland, there was a crisis in Iceland, and now following Greece, there's a crisis in Spain right. and a crisis in Italy, in Hungary. This is the crisis of capitalism. So, all these capitalist countries suffer from the same type of crisis which are inherent in, in the system of capitalism. Now, Greece somehow became a particular target of the, of the Troika and with um, Germany leading the chorus of criticism because uh, Mrs. Merkel, the German Chancellor, is a very rigid uh, person. There are some unflattering names that the Greeks uh, use to describe her, which I'm not going to translate. Uh, but she is the one who insists on austerity, even though by now anybody can see that austerity is counterproductive and destructive and has led to more and more crisis in Spain, in Italy, in addition to Greece, and will continue to do so unless reversed. Well, that's another really enjoyable guest, Arison Agnos, brilliant guy, he's 89, he's about to turn 90. I think he's one of the best analysts of European politics. We want to have him back on the show more often. And he's very good at getting to the economic roots of a lot of the problems, that is the capitalist system it itself, and able to describe capitalism in its political manifestations. So now we've had Momia Abu-Jamal, Diane Fugino, Lisa Gay Hamilton, and Arison Agnos, it's hard to get a show where you can get all these great people uh, to talk to you. So I want to make sure we get Alex Sanchez, and who's such an amazing guy. Joining me now in the KPFK studio is Alex Sanchez. As many KPFK and Voices listeners know, Alex is an internationally recognized peacemaker, former gang member, co-founder, and executive director of Homies Unidos, and a repeated target of federal prosecution. In terms of the work we're trying to do with Voices from the Front Lines, we're a movement show. We're not here to entertain you. We're not even here to inform you. We're here to motivate you, to get you involved, and to take action. So we don't just sort of do just a random number of shows. We try to focus on certain things. So Alex's case is not like, well, thanks, Alex. Come on the show and see you later. This is an important case. So we've been trying to track this case. We're really excited to have you back on the show. What started this whole thing in the first place? Right. Well, it, you know, uh, I didn't grow up in a political system where I learned, you know, from people like Maria Guardado, for instance. Uh, I came to be uh, to, to that. I came to realize that the reasons why I got involved in the gang. And once I started asking those questions, you know, I started questioning those systems. And then myself, being having been deported in 94 and having to live through death squads in El Salvador in 94, you know, this black shadow when it originally came out to target gang members as, as their, their way of uh, deterring youth from gangs that did not work. And then the fact that I came as an immigrant after that, and I struggled as an immigrant through Mexico, I think I realized that, that there, there was a lot more in common with other movements than just working with gang members. And that's why, you know, we started looking at, at the issues of immigration and the criminalized immigrants that are being, that are being targeted, you know, since they're 
young men and women in our community. So it opened up my mind to a lot of things, and I started reading. You know, uh, Howard Zinn, you know, was a book that I, well, once I started reading, I couldn't lay, lay down of it. I was in the federal prison, and, and I said, I'm going to go out, but not Howard Zinn. He's staying in here <laughs> to educate other people. Right. And, you know, I felt that, that, um, that I, I have found a purpose. And at the same time, you know, there's many opportunities. I don't know where I'm going next in regards to myself. What I do know is that I want to rebuild what I started with others, you know, and, and the organization right now has taken a toll. You know, we had to close down our previous office. We're working off site now. But, you know, we want to build it up because I feel that I've been targeted by a larger gang, which is the federal government. That's right. You know, and I'm not going to back out from this fight and I'm going to rebuild. You know, and if I go, I'm going to go on my terms, not on their terms. The voice you're hearing, the terrific voice you're hearing is Alex Sanchez, uh, one of the founders of Homies Unidos. And I've been having a sort of some discussions with a lot of people lately about organizing, you know. And, and uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is sort of what I've been calling the gift of consciousness, that the system sometimes gives us the gift of consciousness that we didn't. Well, we had to take it down a little bit. Uh, you were able to hear. I'm so happy to see Alex Sanchez. And that's going to do it for today's Voices show. We've had 25 people either call in or write in or email in. Very good. 25 is pretty good, and we'll get more next time. I want to thank you for listening to Voices from the Frontlines. I really enjoyed the show. This has been your host, Eric Mann. I'd like to thank our guests, Alex Sanchez, our Arison Agnos, Lisa Gay Hamilton, Diane Fugino, and Momia Abu-Jamal. You can hear our beautiful voice. We can have music, as always, from Nina Simone. Please visit the Voices website, www.voicesfromfrontlines.com, and please, please sign up. Sign up for our weekly announcements of guests for the show. You can listen to past shows and read my blogs, articles, and books. I'd like to thank our engineer, G, who always brings amazingly good energy, and producer Jeff Ramsey-Ray, who did a great job cutting and ed editing these shots. And up next is Background Briefing with Ian Masters. Hey, next Tuesday, we have Cynthia McKinney, and we have Dehan Song all the way from Korea talking about events there. So that's a week's advance notice. I'll see you next week. Take good care of yourselves. So here, everybody, sorry, everybody listen carefully. On th This is going to be an excerpt of one of my new dear friends and Channing's new dear friend, Keith Lamar, this brilliant philosopher, black philosopher, black revolutionary, in solitary confinement in Youngstown, Ohio, facing the death penalty that luckily was delayed for a couple of years, but he's still facing the death penalty. So check this out. On Thursday night, October 5th, we're going to have a phenomenal event honoring Keith Lamar, raising money for Keith Lamar. We're going to have entertainment, a terrific jazz band. It's going to mainly be a concert, and Keith will be doing some spoken word Afterwards, he and I are going to do a live conversation from his prison cell to my used-to-be prison cell. And it's going to be an amazing evening. If you're interested, tickets will be available 
around September 6th, when we say Wednesday, September 6th, you'll be able to go on info at the strategycenter.org. No, Channing, say no. Okay, because even if Amy sends the stuff, right? Yeah, I still gotta put it up. Thank you. Oh, yeah, duh, All right, thanks. We'll start again, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no, not from the top, just from the ticket. Yeah. Oh, Friday, September 8th, right? Because yeah. you also got the guy coming. All right, so if you're interested in coming, you gotta wait till September 8th. Eighth, because Channing's out of town for a while and nothing moves. If Channing leaves, the whole strategy center shuts down. And he's going to come back on the 8th, and we're going to have the tickets ready. Uh, if you're interested in getting tickets, you go on info at thestrategycenter.org, and there'll be tickets for this amazing October 5th benefit. And KPFK listeners, listen, uh, this is a brother facing the death penalty. There's a terrific legal team working for him. And an amazing person also named uh, Amy Goodajev is, boy, the campaign manager, and she's setting up three different events in L.A. alone. You'll have a phenomenal time meeting Amy. You'll meet Channing. You'll be at the Strategy Soul Movement Center at 3546. Martin Luther King, South Central Los Angeles, right near Crenshaw. You'll hear great jazz. You'll hear Keith doing some spoken words. Then you'll hear a conversation with Keith and I. If you're interested, set your alarm for September 8th and go on info at thestrategycenter.org and look at the tickets. If not, if you forget, then I'll be back on Tuesday, September 12th, and I will not stop talking about this until you call. So we're now going to listen to uh, an excerpt for a conversation between myself and Keith. Uh, one more thing. Keith, of course, is in his cell. One of the dynamics that happens in these conversations is I was in prison for 18 months. I was in solitary for 40 days, and I was on probation for three more years, which really sucked. So Keith brings out the prisoner in me in the very good sense, and I bring out his ability to talk more clearly about his own situation because he trusts me. So we'll play an excerpt and then Channing will fade it out, but you'll get a lot of Keith and Eric, and then if you want more, you come back on Thursday night, October 5th. So take care of yourself, and let's listen to a true, brilliant man, philosopher king, prisoner, black prisoner, Keith Lamar. So I just had two thoughts while you were dealing with it. So uh, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that, um, so I'm up there, back in this story, so I'm up there breathing and using these bands, and I'm in a deep meditative, meditative state. So I said to my, you know, teacher, because um, I knew we only had a few minutes left, why don't we sit down so we can meditate? And she said, why do you want to leave where you are? You are meditating. Mm -hmm. I was deep for me. Yeah, why don't I want to go somewhere else? And then mm -hmm. I have a news bulletin for the world. I'm giving the book to Amy. I kind of come and get it. Why not? I got three copies left, and you got you guys got two. What am I going to do? I couldn't think of a better use of it. 
You can have my book. At some point, I must have understood because you had given it up anyway, so it, it's really irrelevant. You would have told me you lost it. So I am hereby publicly. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, my copy, man, um, I, I let guys read my books, but that book was not leaving this sale. You know, you can guarantee that. That book, because it's just too fragile in the first place. Right, right. You know, that's the excuse I'm using. And, you know, guys, <laughs> man, I real don't have the reverence, right. you know, for stuff, man. You know what I mean? You know. But, yeah, I had that little baby with me, man, on, on the... Uh, it's one of those books, those old books, like the Donald Goins books. Remember Donald Goins? I don't know if you ever read Donald Goins. Donald Goins, little paperback books was just like that random house and everything. Yes, yes, yes. Tony Morrison, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, I'm going to get, um, I'm going to get um, um, Solid Dad Brothers, too. I'm going to read those letters again. But we're going to work out with Amy, you know, if I can, I don't want to go into which I, can I bring some? I will mail some from the bookstore, no, but I'm going to make a, a whole bunch of books, Keith. Okay, I promise. Okay, yeah, I um, the salad dad, the prison letters. You know, I had those man when I was going through the really really rough part, and it made yeah. me kind of. Um, George, he was doing a hell of a bit too, man. He was doing a hell of a bit. You know, and he was going down some real dangerous, going in some real dangerous directions. He's being pushed down some real dangerous paths, and I've 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 been pushed similarly, you know, and have wound up in situations. And you know, it's this one guy here who I'm with, and you know, uh, um, he saved my life, man, during one of these episodes where I really could have that gave these people the justification to shoot me, and I'm sure that's what they came in to do. Right. But uh, because of the actions of this one person right. that I feel like, damn, I owe you, you know, a pass simply because I wouldn't be alive if you wouldn't have did this simple little thing. Right. And right. if I wouldn't have lied, I mean, I would have never met my niece, my nephew and all these other beautiful things and people, you know what I mean? So I just kept giving them passes. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of people feel so invisible that they actually think that they are invisible, that the things that they do, you can't even see it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. it's the most obvious, you know what I mean? Because, you know, I can see, you know, and see the good thing about growing up the way I grew up, the good and bad thing is that I've been exposed to a lot of snakes. Right. You know, right. that's the bad thing. But the good thing is that I've been exposed to a lot of snakes. I know how they move. You know, I know, I know how snakes you know, get from point A to point B. You know what I mean? I've seen it my whole life. You know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, um, so I'm going to protect myself. You know, you, you, the thing that you, the hurt, that the harm that you want to cause, that won't happen. You know, but what I won't do is return that harm to you as my friend. I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a give you that. This man, they take a lot from you. And see, that's the thing, man. You talking about one of the things that I've learned. I've been learning this, but it, 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 it's, it's brought back home to me over and over again how much we are reliant on each other. You know, none of what I'm doing would mean anything if it wasn't being reciprocated by the, somebody on the other side. Like if nobody was on the other side of this phone, I'd be talking to myself. Right. You know, 
and the things that, that I'm saying about how I feel and what I think wouldn't mean as much if I wasn't communicating that to another human being and vice versa. You know, you heard, got my book, I have your copy of your that's book. That's right, that's right. You know, and I heard, I heard, I hold your, held your life in my hands. And, and, and you, you know, I, I picked off some pages, man. You, you put down some hell of a sentences in that book, man. I said, oh, that's cold. I said that, that's nice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is nice right there. And I'm saying to myself, and I read books that, no, you would never be able to top that. You know what I mean? I done read wow. authors and James Barber fire next time or, you know, James Barber, he topped himself a couple of times though. He's one of the few people who can do that. But I think, I think we just got one big major thing in our life, man. You know, that we have to give ourselves to really, really explore it, explore it, go as deep as we possibly can into it and then bring it back out and give to the world. And you have done that, man. Not a lot of people will do that, you know, and your grandkids and your kids, you, you might not ever get to meet, you know, to my, you know other generations. They're going to know who you are, though, because of the time you sat down. And where did you write that book at? Did you write it on the typewriter or longhand? Yes, 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 I wrote it. In fact, it's funny. In my office right now, uh, we have this beautiful house called the Crenshaw House. It's in South Central. I have a Smith Corona, elect, Smith Corona electric typewriter that I used oh for 20 years. I wrote all my stuff on that. And then I got one of those IBM with the ball where the ball spins. So yes, I write almost almost most of my books with were on a typewriter. I just want to say a couple of thoughts. Um, DRC Correctional Facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to do a little... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they already told me in the, in the message that if you do this and you do that, you're violating GTE policy. So everybody's got rules. So I just want to talk about Amy for a minute. Obviously, I have tremendous love for you, but the work that Amy does is part of another tradition, the prisoner support work, the prisoner's defense work. Um, she's not an individual, you know what I mean? Like when I was, uh, I went out to uh, San Francisco and there was a San Quentin Six Committee and there was a guy, Fleet of Drumgo, who was on trial. And we had to go out and get a shirt yeah, yeah. for him. We had a, he wanted a specific kind of shirt because he was going to court. He didn't want it to look a certain way. And we dealt with people's uh -huh. letters. We dealt with people's families. And what Amy is doing, you could say for you and with you, is an amazing, uh -huh. I know you know it, but I want the public to understand that Amy Gordijev is an organizer and she's part of the prisoners movement. And without the Amy, you know, as great as you are, Keith, you know that. Without, I mean, I'm just telling you what you already know, that no, no, Amy, yeah, know. Amy uh, for every time I talk to you, I probably have talked to Amy five times to work out all the logistics and logistics are so important for the revolution. And I just want to thank you, Amy. That's the point. Thank you publicly. And you're such a part of this tapestry we're building. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't have any direct experience in this particular area. Just, you know, was my friend and we were just sitting down and we were just talking, 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 talking. 
and we just said to talking, let's just get going and see what we can do. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that she and I um, stop sometimes, because you do also have to stop and smell the roses, so that's to speak. Right, that's right. You know, because that's what life is about. You have to, you know, take some time sometimes to look at a sunset if you have that view. Right. You know, because that's what's so amazing about being here on this planet above and beyond the petty that we as humans have created for ourselves. You know, we are walking through this mysterious world and um, we carve it something that is inevitable. Can't, there's no words really to describe it. But every now and then we do stop and just marvel at, can you believe it? It's really something, man. It's really something. And, and, to, and it would be nothing to kind of go back to my earlier point if you didn't have someone with you to bear witness. That's right. You know what I mean? And so we confirm, you know, like, you know, because if she wasn't here, if you wasn't here, then I can just as easily be making this whole thing up that I'm doing concerts all over the world. <laughs> right, right. Come on, right. nobody's going to believe that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even believe that. So, yeah, man, you know, to have, and, and George had the same thing. That's right. You know, um, That's right. and you need it. You know, and that's why he was such a force, that's right. such a formidable force. You were just listening to a clip of Keith Lamar in conversation with Eric Mann. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Front Lines, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. You can find every show on our podcast and on our website, www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com, or search Voices from the Front Lines on your favorite podcasting site. As we said... There will be an event with Keith Lamar in concert, a jazz concert, at Strategy and Soul in the heart of South Central Los Angeles, 3546 West Martin Luther King on October 5th. On Friday, September 8th, you can go on the Strategy Center website, www.thestrategycenter.org, and get tickets. Until then, we'll see you next week. And state by case of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I've traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did my way I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I